How did Ukraine handle the world wars? How did Stalin influence Ukraine? How has Russia influenced Ukraine over the last 100 years? These questions and many others are going to be answered in today's episode, part one of the last 100 years in Ukraine. Welcome to Wiser World, a podcast for busy people who need a refresher on all things world. Here we explore different regions of the globe, giving you the facts and context you need to think historically about current events. I truly believe that the more we learn about the world, the more we embrace our shared humanity. I'm your host, Allie Roper. Thanks for being here. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back. Today we are continuing the mini-series with the last 100-ish years of Ukraine. Before I go any further, these episodes are going to make so much more sense if you go back and listen to parts one and two of Russia. Promise I am not saying that to get you to listen to more of the podcast. This really will make so much more sense if you listen to those. And I really want to thank everyone who has shared and reviewed so far I am just starting out, and so thank you, thank you. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast on your favorite app or signed up for my email newsletter, you can do that through the links in my show notes. And also, I also cite all of my sources in my show notes. All right, let's do this, Ukraine. Here in the United States, the history of Eastern European countries is generally not taught. The general population knows very little about Ukraine, I think. So these episodes are going to help us a lot in understanding the conflict that is currently happening there as I am recording this podcast. And I have to say that in diving into the deeper history of this nation, my respect for the Ukrainian people is so high, and that is my mental state going into this. Before we dive into history, there are three major things about Ukraine I think we got to know from the beginning. The first is that Ukrainian history is very complicated, certainly more complicated than I thought when I started researching. And one of the reasons is because Ukraine has been ruled by multiple empires and countries over the years, and it hasn't always been the Ukraine that we see today. Some regions were ruled for a long time by Austria-Hungary, and others associate with Poland or Romania. And some regions were heavily influenced by Russia more than other regions. And the borders of Ukraine have changed a lot in the last 100 years. So this means that each region has kind of different ethnicities and opinions. For example, the Donbass region has always had coal and heavy industry as the center of its economy. And so this has always been a region to watch in Ukraine. It also has almost all Russian speakers living there. Other regions have been big on agriculture. Galicia is a region that has always had heavier relationships with Poland than Russia because it's on the west side of Ukraine. So you can see how these regions are very important because Ukraine has not always been this cohesive body of land with one ethnicity and one language, and it makes the history infinitely more complex and nuanced. So just know that going in that as I share these things, I've got it stripped down to what I think are the essentials, but each of these regions has very complex history in and of themselves. The second thing is that Ukraine is such an important country in the world because 
Of all of the republics that were part of the Soviet Union, Ukraine was the largest in terms of landmass, except for Russia itself. So do you remember in the Russia episodes how we talked about after the Soviet Union fell, it was a really difficult transition for many of those republics when they became independent? They'd just been under communism for so long that having a more open economy with more businesses owned by private citizens, not having everything controlled by the government, that they weren't used to it. And so there was a lot of inflation and switching to a more democratic system of government was really challenging for these countries. And there were many, many chaotic years. But interestingly enough, of all of the countries, Ukraine has maintained democratic institutions for most of those years and has generally oriented itself more toward the values of Western Europe and the United States than some of its other neighbors like Russia and Belarus. So this puts it in a unique position in the sense that on the world stage, many countries like Western Western European countries and the United States, and, and we're seeing now many other countries as well, see a threat to Ukraine as presenting a major threat to international order, especially to other Eastern European nations. And we'll talk more about that later. But it is really an important country to know about. The third thing is that land is a really big deal when it comes to Ukraine. If you haven't looked it up on a map yet, go do that right now. Google where it is and see where its neighbors are. Ukraine is bound by Russia to its northeast, east, and southeast. So the eastern side, largely Russia, and then the Black Seas in the south. And then when you go on the southwest, west, and north, Ukraine shares borders with Moldova, Romania, Hungary, Hungary Slovakia, Poland, and Belarus. That's six countries. So we're seeing that borders matter because Russia staged troops in Belarus to invade Ukraine. So what countries border your country are very, very important. And Ukraine has always kind of been a gateway to Europe for many centuries. It serves as kind of a bridge between Europe and Eurasia. It also has a lot of farmable land or arable land. It also has the Donbass region, which is one of the largest industri industrial regions in the world. So military industry, metalwork, mechanical engineering. The Soviet Union used to really rely on that region for a lot of its industry. So it, when it lost that after the Soviet Union fell, that was a big loss. And so land is really important to Putin. If Putin is indeed empire building here, which is what many people are saying he's doing, then that land of Ukraine would become very important to him. So those are my three things. I want to get those out of the way. All right, let's go into the very brief history of Ukraine. Like I said earlier, up, up until roughly the late 1800s, which is where we started with Russia, Ukraine had a history of being controlled by big empires, Russians, Austro-Hungarians, Turkish Ottomans, Polish Lithuanians, sometimes different empires ruled different parts of the land we now know as Ukraine at the same time time. But Ukraine had a very brief time in history. Back in like the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, there was some little time in there where a group called the Cossacks had their own little independent nation. And they, the Cossacks are seen as kind of the original Ukrainians. And so later on, we'll see that Ukraine, when it's trying to get independence, it will call on this original Ukrainian culture called the Cossacks. And that's kind of interesting to know. Ukraine has often had different nicknames depending on which region um, or w under which country it was under, right? And so it was often called like the Little Russians by the Russian Empire. And so back in the 1700s when the French Revolution and the American Revolution was going on, the Little Russians or the Ukrainians 
started hearing about, ooh, wow, that's so interesting that all of these countries are overthrowing their monarchies. And I wonder if we could do that. Could we become an independent nation? And obviously the Russians who controlled the large majority of Ukraine, they didn't love this. And so they imposed strict rules like not speaking the Ukrainian language, not participating in Ukrainian cultural activities. And you'll see that Russia does this on and off up until 1991. It is always trying, generally always trying to keep the Ukrainian culture down. And by the 1800s, late 1800s, Ukrainian nation builders start like ditching the name Rus or little Russians, and they start calling themselves Ukrainians and talking about the Cossacks and they want to have their own thing. And at the time, it was controlled by Russia and largely the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And so with all of the changes that were going on in the late 1800s and early 1900s with industrialization and lots and lots of overpopulation, lots of Russian peasants moving into Ukraine, lots of manual labor in the cities, this was kind of a time where everything was shifting and changing. And so a group of Ukrainian students started their own party. They, they really wanted to have independence. And there were so many disagreements amongst the Ukrainians. Should we get full liberation? Should we start shooting for just some autonomy within Russia? What should we do? And it was very split. And ultimately, a lot of those independence movements were were squashed in pretty horrible ways, to be honest. And so Russia at the time, which again ran most of Ukraine at the time, it was becoming overpopulated. It was socially behind. And in 1905... Those workers marched on the Tsar's Winter Palace and they got shot down. We talked about that in the last few episodes. And so only three days after that horrible Bloody Sunday incident, Ukraine started having strikes and open resistance to authority in Kyiv, which was a major city at the time. And peasants began cutting down trees belonging to nobles and they would attack their mansions and the military became uncontrollable. And basically the strikes got so bad that Nicholas II, who was the Tsar of Russia, He gave some concessions. He started granting basic civil rights, freedom of conscience and speech, assembly, association. He started allowing the freedom to vote for men. And he created something called the Duma, which was the first Russian parliament or or Congress, meaning a a group of voting, a a body that voted, right? And they would, he promised that it would ensure representation of all classes of society. And so you can see here how the Russian, the Ukrainians are like, hmm. Russia is on the brink of turning from an absolute monarchy to a constitutional one. So they start printing in Ukrainian in their newspapers, which had been shut down for a really long time. And they start pushing the envelope little bit by little bit, even though they're still part of the Russian empire. Now, this Duma or this idea of a Russian Congress, it was not enough for Lenin's radical group of communists or the labor party, right? They wanted to topple the entire empire. And meanwhile, back in Ukraine, there were Russophiles or pro-Russian Ukrainians, and then there were Ukrainians who were not. And there was a province or a region called Galicia, which today is now divided between Ukraine and eastern Poland. It's on the west side of Ukraine. But in that region, it was not cool to be pro-Russian, and they would persecute you to be pro-Russian. And then on the eastern side, it was cool to be pro-Russian. There were a lot more Russophiles there. And so it was a very split nation at the time, or a very split region of the Russian Empire at the time. Now, in 1914, 
World War I broke out. And this was a time when nationalism was a very big deal because a nationalist started World War I. And so we were seeing a lot of these huge empires that had been around for a very long time. They were weakening. And the people that had been underneath them were multi-ethnic and there are lots of ethnicities going on and they were getting fired up about having their own independence away from these empires. And so this war triggered by these this nas- nationalist activist, it did serious damage to these empires and the Austro-Hungarian Empire fell apart, the Ottoman Empire fell apart and they just disintegrated. And Ukraine was among the nations that World War II kind of gave a chance to create a state of its own. And Ukrainians were, nationalism was on the rise there. Even though the Austrians and the Russians were trying to stamp it down and Ukrainians were brutally treated, it was on the rise. And during World War I, Ukraine was split. It was split into two separate and opposing armies. The majority fought for the Imperial Russian Army, but some had to fight for the Austro-Hungarians. And so it was Ukrainians having to fight against Ukrainians. And World War I left Ukraine with a basically ruined economy, huge losses to the population, a lot of different ethnic groups and political groups who disagreed on how Ukraine should be. But they did generally agree on one thing, that Ukraine should be independent. And toward the end of World War I, when Russia went through this massive revolution known as the Bolshevik Revolution, Nicholas II stepped down And the Duma, again, the first Russian Congress, kind of took over and made a provisional government. And the Ukrainians saw this moment as like, ooh, they're falling apart. This is our moment to declare our own independence. And so in Kyiv in 1917, a group of representatives of Ukrainian political and cultural organizations, they created a body that they called the Central Rada. They had a leader And it was a mixed group, and they began to work on creating a government for an independent Ukraine. They even made a coat of arms with the yellow and blue colors that we see today. But sadly, it was not long before the Central Rada began to lose control because it couldn't fulfill its promises, and power began to shift toward the Bolsheviks, where the communist-dominated areas of the countryside, because they were getting even more restless. The, the Central Rada was not keeping its promises. And so the peasants began seizing state and noble lands on their own initiatives, and it was just chaos. Despite this, the Central Rada did proclaim a Ukrainian People's Republic, a state in its own right, still in union with Russia, but a state by itself. Sadly, it was, again, short-lived, and in January of 1918, the Bolshevik troops from Russia entered Ukraine, and they took control of major industrial centers, and the Central Rada lost control of its industrialized towns. It also had very few troops. So this is something that they decreed back in 1918. Quote, we want to live in peace and friendship with all neighboring states, Russia, Poland, Austria, Romania, Turkey, and others but none of them has the right to interfere in the life of the independent Ukrainian Republic. So they read this universal decree, but Russian troops of the Red Army came in and the Rada put up a fight with some students and cadets, but eventually the Central Rada abandoned Kyiv and retreated westward. And they signed a peace treaty, interestingly enough, with the Central Powers, with Germany and Austria-Hungary. And they kind of had to look beyond their borders for protection. And these countries were exhausted from World War I, and they needed the agriculture from Ukraine. 
And so in exchange for grain, the central powers offered their military machine and they drove the Bolsheviks from Kiev and the central Rada was back. And it was a it was like Ukrainian independence for a hot second. But again, it was short-lived and the Germans didn't really keep their promises. They ended up placing a German dictator in rule of Ukraine. And in some ways it was a good thing because it was the first time that the country got its own banks. It had a functioning financial system. It got its first Academy of the Sciences, a first national library, some universities. But the Central Rada refused to work with him and the laborers hated his regime, this German dictator. And after only a few months, thousands of workers went on strike. They brought down the dictatorship and the Ukrainian People's Republic was back. But sadly, the Bolsheviks were then preparing to retake Ukraine. So it was just this time of chaos, of, of push and shove. And likewise, on the other side of Ukraine, on the western side, there were Polish people wanting to take the land. And so there was a long and bloody war called the Ukrainian-Polish War going on. And so finally in 1918, at the very end of 1918, Representatives from the East and the West decided to join forces and create a single state of unity as much as they could muster. But by 1919, Ukraine was in total chaos, weak armies, the Bolsheviks are just trying to take over. There's a major epidemic of typhus. You can just see it's like a it's a dumpster fire. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And one historian wrote that it says, Indeed, in the modern history of Europe, no country experienced such complex anarchy, bitter civil strife, and total collapse of authority as did Ukraine at this time. Six different armies operated on its territory in 1919. Kiev changed hands five times in less than a year. Can you imagine your capital city changing hands five times in less than a year? Okay, back to the quote. Cities and regions were cut off from each other by the numerous fronts. Communications with the outside world broke down almost completely. The starving cities emptied as people moved into the countryside in search of food. So 1919 was just crazy, so much chaos. And of all the regimes and armies that were found, the Bolsheviks left the largest 
footprint and kept Kiev in their hands the longest. So Lenin came up with an idea. Why not address the Ukrainians in their native language? So Russification or pro-Russia stuff was out. Cultural accommodation was in. So they started inviting some of the cultural elite in Ukraine to join them. And even some of the peasants were given land and they kind of courted the people. And it worked. In 1920, the Bolsheviks were able to establish control over central and eastern Ukraine. Poland continued to attack from the west. In March 1921, representatives of Soviet Russia, Soviet Ukraine, and Poland finally signed a peace treaty that established a new Polish-Soviet border. And with this treaty, Ukraine found itself divided not between two countries, as before World War I, but amongst four Most Ukrainian lands were incorporated into the Soviet Union, with Lenin as the leader, and the remainder in western Ukraine was divided amongst Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Romania. And between 1918 and 1939, so between these two world wars, Ukraine was now the largest nation in Europe who did not have answers to its national question. It didn't have a state of its own. It was divided between these four different countries, and each of the governments handled Ukraine differently. Some were really accommodating of Ukrainian culture. Some were very suppressive. And again, the majority of Ukraine was signed over to the Bolsheviks. And Lenin died shortly after this, and Joseph Stalin took over. And Stalin wanted Ukraine to join the new communist country with some sense of independent rights. He thought that the goal was to keep the Ukrainians in and the Poles out. And he did not want any kind of uprisings. He wanted to kind of ease them into it. He put the frog in comfortable water and then slowly cranked up the heat until it was cooked. So initial Soviet policy at the time was Ukrainian language and Ukrainian culture. He made the Ukrainian, the official language of schools. And he was really staunch on this. He called it Ukrainization. And he had a Russian who was leading the cause, and it was a total temporary tactic. Basically, in the 1920s, Soviet leaders wanted world revolution, and they wanted to weaken the countries of Eastern Europe. Meanwhile, Western European countries wanted to take those same Eastern European countries and create a buffer zone to prevent the spread of Bolshevism into Europe. And so basically, this was a really conflicted time in Eastern Europe. But of all the regimes that controlled parts of Ukrainian territory during this period, Russia really was the only one that allowed Ukrainian national projects, so offering support of their culture. But the interesting thing was it was very short-lived because by 1929, the Soviet secret police began a wave of arrests of major Ukrainians on bogus charges. Many of them were killed, and the whole thing switched around. It totally changed. By December 1929, Stalin turns 50. He is so powerful at this time that he has surpassed Lenin and every other Russian czar before him. And he and his narrow circle of aides are making most of the decisions in the Soviet Union at the time. He had a kind of a cult of personality that grew steadily through the 1930s, and people were terrified to speak up against him. He started a government-funded and state-run program that was high on industrialization. Priority was heavy industry and energy and building of machinery. And he did something called collectivization, which basically means that he wanted to start state-run collective farms based on the plots of land that would be distributed to peasants. So 
Most of this industrialization and collectivization of farms started in the late 1920s once Ukraine was really comfortable. And it essentially, well, generally more comfortable, right, than it would have been if it had had its culture suppressed. And it essentially made pretty much everything in the economy under government rule. And these huge projects started to take place. So like a massive dam was built to make electricity in Ukraine. And the government started controlling these leading industries and it started allowing for some free market in agriculture, but most of it was really heavy on getting the government in charge. Religion was pushed underground. It was not encouraged. And the Soviet Union had an unofficial policy of atheism. And so all of these things start to kind of come together at the end of the 1920s. And Stalin also creates a cultural revolution, which was basically a set of policies that were to create a new generation of leaders in the communist um, party to replace all the old guys. The way to keep communism alive was to get the young people on board. Ukraine was important because it had 20% of the Soviet Union's population, and it had a great potential for agricultural production, especially in grain. So the idea of collective farms was forced on Ukraine, and Stalin hit this hard, started tamping down on Ukrainian culture, and then he would send officers of the state out to the countryside, and he would they would coerce the peasants to join these collective farms, and they'd have to give up their private parcels of land and all their horses and their equipment. And by March 1930, the Soviet Union had collected about 70% of the arable land, while the previous year it had only been 6%. So talk about coercion. Most peasants were bullied, and many would rather kill their livestock than give it to the authorities. So there was this massive slaughter of livestock. Some resisted, they protested, they even tried to kill Soviet administrators, but obviously the army and the secret police were sent after them. And most of these peasants that were putting up a fight, they were kind of richer land-owning peasants, and they were called kulaks. And in 1930, the Soviets just wanted these guys gone. So they deported up to a million of these kulaks, or kind of well-off peasants, and they deported them off to remote parts of Kazakhstan and Siberia. And many were taken to remote forests by train and they were left to die of disease and malnutrition. They completely got rid of this entire group. And many of the peasants left over who did go to the collective farms would resist by refusing to grow grain more than was necessary to, to survive at first. And Stalin refused to admit defeat, and he would accuse the peasants of sabotage, and then he would set grain quotas, or like, you got to make this much grain, and these quotas were impossible to meet. And to add to this, the farms were horribly managed by upper management, and then they'd had a famine the year before, so they were already set back, and then the grain was confiscated from individual farmers, and so they didn't have enough to eat. So Basically, the policy was, you grow the grain, and we take it all. And Stalin especially targeted Ukraine and demanded more and more grain that they just couldn't produce. And then what they did produce was largely taken. And so this new policy of his brought famine and mass starvation to Ukraine in the winter and spring of 1932. And just in that one winter and spring, 80,000 died of hunger in just the Kyiv region alone. It happened very quickly, and party bosses tried to call in for assistance, but honestly, it was too late. About five, it's estimated that 5.7 to 8.7 million people lost their lives during this famine. So four to five million of them were Ukrainian, 
and the rest was in the other areas of the Soviet Union. So this means one of eight Ukrainians died of hunger between 1932 and 1934 because of Stalin's policies. And this famine is called the Holodomor, and then some call it the Holodomor Genocide. It's still controversial on whether or not it was a genocide, but most scholars agree that it was a man-made phenomenon and that it happened at the same time as Stalin trying to tamp down on Ukrainian culture. More people died in the Holodomor famine than in the Holocaust. It can be argued that Stalin killed more of his own people or people under his control than Hitler did in terms of actual genocide. His policies killed millions of people so basically, Ukrainization is over. The famine has totally fundamentally changed Ukraine. He has purged anyone who went against him. They've been exiled or they've been killed. And then the rest toe the party line no matter what. Those who survived this famine had learned their lesson. They could survive only by joining the collective farms, which were taxed at a lower rate. And this dramatically changed the economy. It was like, we got to toe the party line or we're going to die. By the end of the 1930s and the start of World War II, Ukraine actually had a very high industrial output. And that's because everyone fell into line. Then came Stalin's Great Purge, which we talked about when he took out anybody who disagreed with him. And a lot of Ukrainians were arrested during this time. Close to half of them were executed. This is in the hundreds of thousands. And the goal was to ensure the survival of the regime and Stalin's position as its supreme leader. And interestingly enough, even his loyal leaders during the famine, he had them shot and killed because he wanted to replace them with docile and ignorant and stupid new guys who were unaware of the crimes of the past and would serve him faithfully. So again, I just want to reiterate that Stalin is a person to know because we talk a lot, at least here in the United States, about Hitler but Stalin is definitely up there, and he might have more murders under his belt than Adolf Hitler. Meanwhile, talking about Hitler, he was on a mission to take over the world at this time, and he saw Eastern Europe as an opportunity. So he wanted to wipe out the existing population of Eastern Europe, Ukraine in particular, and then he wanted to populate it with German colonists. He wanted to send the Germans in. And obviously, this was a very different dream than Stalin had. He, you know, Hitler wanted to depopulate and Stalin did not. He wanted to industrialize everything. And so Hitler's dream was to get the Soviet Union's land for settlement and all of its natural resources. And then he wanted to turn Germany into this continental empire that no one could touch. So when Hitler attacked Poland in September 1st of 1939, Hitler and Stalin had this agreement once Hitler had Poland, Stalin would get some of it. And so Stalin sent some troops to help out. The Polish army was decimated, and Stalin got his part of Poland with his Red Army. But the deal was that there was going to be no other aggression after that. Now, the Poles, who are now part of the Soviet Union, were told to start speaking Ukrainian, because they were now technically part of Ukraine. And so the occupation authorities began mass arresting these Polish people. They'd send them off to far north, Siberia, Central Asia, the secret police or the NKVD. They would deport hundreds of thousands of them. It is said that they deported close to 1.25 million people from Ukraine. And they would hunt down 
any Ukrainian nationalists as well. And during this time, Stalin suspected that Hitler was going to come back and attack him, even though they had signed the non-aggression pact. So he started to take control of the Baltic states of Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania, parts of Romania. And he started to get ideas of how he could take over the, those areas, deport all the people who didn't like him and start taking over that land. But the interesting thing was that Hitler attacked a year earlier than Stalin predicted because Hitler needed Soviet resources. It needed Ukrainian wheat and coal. And so Hitler's advisors told him not to do it, but he decided to do it. And in June of 1941, German troops invaded Ukraine and the Red Army had a lot of equipment. They had what they needed, but their officers were so inexperienced because they were all these young guys, right? And all the old guys had been purged by Stalin. And so the commanders were so ill-equipped to deal with this. And so Kiev actually fell to the Germans in September of 1941. And Ukraine was taken over by the Germans. I did not know this. I did not know that Ukraine had a time when it was occupied by Germany. Many in Ukraine welcomed the German advance because they were hoping for an end to the Soviet occupation. And so they actually collaborated with the Nazis. But many Ukrainians were not happy about it. And in fact, during this time, the Ukrainian nationalist movement, which was underground, they started to rise up again and they formed even a little army and they fought both the Soviets and the Nazis. And while the Nazis had control of Ukraine at this time, some 1.5 million Jews were murdered in Ukraine or taken out of Ukraine to be murdered during that occupation. So between 1939 and 1945, Ukraine lost almost 7 million citizens. Only Belarus and Poland sustained higher proportional losses to its population. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Under the Nazis, Ukraine was not in any better shape. The collective farms continued, but industry deteriorated. Lots of Ukrainians were actually taken to Germany to be slave laborers. And education was limited to only elementary school. Ukrainian culture was kiboshed. But what did the Ukrainians do? They turned underground. They organized and resisted. And in 1943, when the Soviets beat the Germans in the Battle of Stalingrad, the Soviets started moving westward and the Germans began moving out. And so by the spring of 1944, the Red Army now had all of Ukraine under Soviet control again. So it was just a very short period of time um, in terms of its large-scale history that Ukraine was ruled by Germany or occupied by Germany. And in 1944 and 1945, all of the different regions of Ukraine were argued over again, and the new borders were designed. And Ukraine became mostly what it is now. And by 1945, so the end of World War II, Ukraine became a charter member of the United Nations alongside the Soviet Union, Britain, United States, France, many other countries. World War II was over, and now the Soviets had to get to work reconstructing Ukraine's economy. All right, that's where we're going to stop. That was a ton of history in a very short amount of time. But some things to consider at the end of this episode. There are people alive today who lived through or their parents lived through Stalin. How would these mass deportations of people viewed as enemies of the state, how would that affect a country's psyche? How would it affect you? Would you be the type to get in line and toe the party line? Or would you be the one to be having secret meetings in your basement? It's just something to think about. I mean, these people are very real people. And consider how having your country change hands and borders so often, how would that affect a country's psyche? Some of you listening to this today might live in a country with occupying forces. How does this affect how you see yourself, your nation, your place in the nation, the role of government, the role of economy? These are just really great questions to consider when you talk about history, I think my major takeaways from this part of Ukraine's history are, first, Ukraine has been through it and has fought for its independence, basically its entire existence. I think in this episode alone, we saw at least 12 million Ukrainians be murdered by a dictator or die at war. And there's probably more than that. That is a ton of people. So seeing what they're going through on the news right now just kills me. It makes me so sad. And we'll learn in part two about how they finally did gain independence. And then it breaks my heart even more to see that their independence is at stake again. The second thing that I took away from this is that leaders make a huge difference. A leader like Stalin can wipe out enormous amounts of people and create fear and terror in ways that many of us have never had to experience. It really is a privilege to vote for leaders. And we have the responsibility to consider very seriously who we vote for. And the third thing that I took away was that people are resilient and they can suffer a lot and still make it through. I am so amazed at the resilience of the Ukrainian people. I did not know very much about Ukraine before embarking on this journey of researching very into their history. And their culture has taken some hits over the years. It has been suppressed over and over and over again, and yet they still persevere. And we'll see even more of that in the next episode. So just... Think of the stories of resistance and strength that I had to leave out here. There are so many interesting stories of individual people making contributions and people can be truly rotten. There are Stalins out in the world, but there are also more amazing people out there too. And those were kind of the things that I, I got out of this, among other things. But thank you so much for listening. Part two is available now. 
though this is a lot of history, so feel free to sit in it. Think about how this history affects the Ukrainian people today and their view of the world and their place in it. I really hope that this gave us some context into the current situation right now in Ukraine. And if it helped you, please share it. I would really appreciate it. Now let's go out and make the world a little wiser. 